The ingredients for today's episode are fanchula, redemption, and whiskey. I'm Andy Anderson, the mischievous maestro, and we're mixing up the perfect combination. The Metropolitan Opera in New York City was founded in 1883, and a new building was built at the corner of 39th and Broadway. The Met was founded as an alternative to New York's long-established Academy of Music, Opera House. Here at the Academy, the oldest and wealthiest families of New York were always on display. It was a social thing, not an artistic thing for them. They didn't want to accept the new wealth of New York into its social circles, so a group got together and founded the Metropolitan Opera. They wanted the company to outshine the old Academy Company. This new company, titled the Metropolitan Opera, opened on October the 22nd, 1883, with a production of Gounod's Faust. The new company was a huge success, and three years later, the Academy's opera season folded. The Metropolitan Opera was actually owned by its wealthiest ticket holders. These included, of course, the Astors, the Rockefellers, the Vanderbilts, and the man himself, J.P. Morgan. This lasted until around 1940, when the official not-for-profit Met Opera was established. The Met said goodbye to the old house on April the 16th, 1966, with a gala farewell performance, and the building was officially raised in May of 1967 after several attempts to save it. The Met Opera made its new home in the newly constructed Lincoln Center on New York City's Upper West Side. Puccini's first trip to New York was to oversee the staging of the first American performances of Manon Lescaut and Madame Butterfly at the Metropolitan Opera. He was excited that the Metropolitan was adding these two operas to their repertoire. His operas La Boheme and Tosca were already staples and the audience favorites. Although reluctant to travel across the Atlantic, Puccini understood the financial gains that could be made in America. Success at the Metropolitan Opera meant increased fame worldwide and more demand for his work. Persuaded by the Metropolitan Opera's generous offer of $8,000 for a month's visit, Puccini made plans for the long trip. In a letter from Paris to his sister, Puccini wrote, quote, In January, I am going to New York for Menon, Butterfly, and Tosca. But first I shall return to Italy, if only for a few days. I have to come for clothes. I must get a fur-lined coat because it is cold in New York. I ought not to have accepted the invitation to America. So here we are, my friends, at one of my favorite parts of every episode. We're going to make a cocktail to go along with the rest of the episode. In the opera La Fanchula del West, one of the first things that you hear in the opera in Act One, all the boys, all the miners are coming in from a hard day's work mining gold. Remember, this is, takes place during the California gold rush. And you hear several times, several American words, English words. But the one that always sticks out to me is the word whiskey. And so, to quote Act One, whiskey per tutti. So, let's make a drink. And today's drink is the Sazerac. Whiskey per tutti! The Sazerac is a New Orleans cocktail, and it dates back pre-Civil War days. The word cocktail actually means anything with a mixture of spirits, bitters, and sugar combined to make a drink. And the word can actually be traced all the way back to the very beginning of the 19th century. 
In 1908, the first printed recipe for a Sazerac appeared in a book called The World's Drinks and How to Mix Them. The official cocktail of New Orleans is the Sazerac, and that was made official by the city and the state in 2008. So here you go. What you're going to need is you're going to need a sugar cube. You're going to need some bitters, rye whiskey, and absinthe. To make the drink, you first start by putting ice in a rocks glass that you're going to serve the drink in, and you chill the glass. Next, put a sugar cube in your cocktail shaker. To that, three or four dashes of bitters. And now to that, add two ounces of rye whiskey. Now you take your muddler and muddle the sugar and the bitters and the rye together. You just wanna make sure that the sugar is dissolved and everything is mixed well together. Now, in the glass that you're going to serve in that you put the ice in earlier, put about a quarter ounce of absinthe in the glass over the ice, and then swirl the ice in the glass together. Basically, what you're doing is coating the inside of the glass with the absinthe. After doing that, discard the ice and the leftover absinthe. So now what you should have is a chilled glass with a nice lining of absinthe on the inside. Put a couple ice cubes over into your cocktail shaker with your rye whiskey, bitter, and sugar mixture. And with your bar spoon, stir it, 10 seconds or so. And now strain that over into the glass. And now you want to take an orange and you want to peel a little bit of the, of the rind off of the orange. Basically, you just you want the zest and the, the peel. This is going to give it a little bit of that orangey flavor that's going to cut through the absinthe a little bit. Drop that over into your glass. Give it a little swirl. And there, my friends, you have the perfect Sazerac. Cheers. Enjoy. How's that Sazerac treating you, my friends? Are you guys ready to... Do a little more digging into La Fanchula del West, Puccini, and the Metropolitan Opera. So uh, sip your drink slowly, and if we need to stop in the middle so you can make another one, just let me know. Happy to do that. After a brief trip to Italy to gather his personal effects for the long journey to America, Puccini and his wife Elvira set sail from France in early January 1907. The ship was comfortable, but crossing was rough. Elvira was seasick most of the time, and Puccini was not in a good mood. He was also struggling with his diet due to the recent diagnosis of diabetes. Once they arrived in New York, the ship was delayed off the coast for a couple days due to a thick fog. They finally docked at 6 p.m. on January the 18th, 1907, the evening of the Met's premiere of Manon Lascaux. The Puccinis were immediately rushed from the dockside to the theater, just in time, the audience reaction was enthusiastic, and Puccini was very pleased with the production, especially the singers, which included Enrico Caruso. In a letter to a friend, he called the evening, quote, a really big success. Unfortunately, the same excitement did not hold for the Met's first performance of Madame Butterfly. Puccini wrote to Ricordi that the press and public praised the production, but he himself was not pleased. He wrote, quote, it was a performance without poetry. Nobody knew anything. 
He complained about the cast. He said the soprano's voice was too weak. Said the conductor didn't know how to control the orchestra, and the stage direction was lazy. Despite this, Puccini had a wonderful time in New York for the few weeks following the performances. He became very popular with the Sheik Society and accepted several invitations to parties and receptions. And he also spent a great deal of time with Elvira shopping and sightseeing. Side note, there was an admirer in New York who would show up each day to the hotel that Puccini was staying in, and this person would offer to pay him $500 for a few lines of music. Each time, Puccini refused. One day on a shopping trip, however, Puccini found a new motorboat that he wanted to add to his collection for use on the lake back home. So, the next day, Puccini sought out the man that was asking for the autograph wrote out a few bars in Musetta's waltz from La Boheme, collected the $500, and then immediately went and purchased the boat and had it shipped back to Italy. Puccini also attended several plays while in New York, including several by his new friend, David Belasco. Remember, David Belasco wrote the play that Madame Butterfly was based on. Of the Belasco plays that he saw, The Music Master, The Rose of the Rancho, and a new one that was a huge smash hit on Broadway at the time, The Girl of the Golden West. Puccini had heard of The Girl from an Italian while still in Paris on his way to America, and he was urged to see the new drama, which had been a huge success for a few months in New York. After seeing the play, Puccini wrote to Tito Ricordi on the 18th of February, 1907, quote, The world is expecting an opera from me, and it is high time it were ready. We've had enough now of Boheme, Butterfly, and company. Even I am sick of them. Here, too, I have been on the lookout for subjects, but there is nothing possible, or rather complete enough. I have found good ideas in Belasco, but nothing definite, solid, or complete. The West attracts me as a background, but in all the plays which I have seen, I have found only some scenes here and there that are decent. Even before Puccini had seriously considered the girl, as he called it, he spent three long years looking at other subjects, including Victor Hugo's Notre Dame, two Oscar Wilde plays, several works by the flamboyant Italian poet Gabriel D'Annunzio, and a trio of one-act plays based on short stories of Max Gorky. Puccini wrote to his publisher that he was going to have an interview with Belasco before he left New York, but didn't hope much from it. And he kept thinking about the idea, the exotic element of the American West in combination of the enormously successful Broadway play. Before leaving New York, he gave a number of newspaper interviews, including one with the New York Times. I quote Puccini, 
I saw his play The Girl of the Golden West and found a female hero very naive and refreshing. I find truth and sincerity in the American drama. I haven't started a new score, at least not on any definite idea. I have found only the subject which appeals to me. I haven't even commenced work. I have doubts if the American public would accept that after the treatment Zalame recently received. Shakespeare I am afraid of. I have thought of King Lear, but who could ever act it among the singers we have today? In another interview, Puccini was asked, why don't you take an Italian subject as Wagner took German epic subjects? And Puccini simply replied, curiously enough, Italian subjects don't interest me. On his way back to Italy, Puccini wrote to David Belasco, Dear Mr. Belasco, I was exceedingly sorry to have left New York without seeing you once more. I have been thinking so much of your play, The Girl of the Golden West, and I cannot help thinking that with certain modifications it might easily be adapted for the operatic stage. Would you be good enough to send me a copy of the play? I could then have it translated, study it more carefully, and write to you my further impressions. I cannot express to you all the admiration I feel for your great talent and how much impressed I was at the drama I saw at your theater. With kindest regards and hoping to hear from you soon, yours sincerely, Giacomo Puccini. Side note. Remember at this point in his life, my friends, Puccini knew very little English, and he only had the slightest of ideas of what the story was actually about. Upon returning home, Puccini became restless as he waited for a subject. He knew the girl wasn't a sure thing, and he may not be able to set it to music. He wrote to Ricordi, quote, I receive story outlines and librettos daily, all secondhand junk. In short, I'll frankly tell you that this inactive life is annoying to me. Puccini kept going back to an older idea for an opera, Marie Antoinette. And he wrote that he continued to struggle with the fact that a renowned French queen and a simple woman from the American West kept wrestling for his heart. Finally, in June of 1907, he signed an agreement with the librettist Zangarini, and in July received word the opera was a go. The Girl of the Golden West was on its way to the opera stage. The first translations, which included Act 1 and Act 2 of the play, arrived on July 8th, and the last two acts, a week later. Puccini told Ricordi to send a contract to Belasco's people, and Ricordi asked Puccini to send the Italian translation to Zangarini. After going back and forth with the librettist, and not being pleased with the speed in which the librettist was working, and also not agreeing to incorporate the ideas that Puccini had been sending him, Puccini, of course, as is tradition with he and his librettists, became very angry. A break in the letters between Puccini and Zagarini between April 15, 1908 and August the 7th of 1909 
shows that Puccini had already split his work with him. During this time period, Puccini had started talking to another Italian librettist, Civanini, and asking him to start looking at the libretto to find ways of reducing it. However, this was not to last. In July of 1908, Puccini wrote to Ricordi, quote, These librettists are a disaster. One has disappeared and the other doesn't even reply to my letters. Zangarini was already working on several other librettos and was ignoring Puccini in retaliation for having to be forced to work with Civanini. After returning to his home, he had retreated to a summer location because of the heat. Puccini wrote to a friend that he wasn't in the mood to work because of a chronic throat pain. Side note, Puccini was a heavy smoker, and some even believe that this was the beginning of the cancer that would kill him 16 years later. But there was something else brewing that would cause even more pain for Puccini. The fall of 1908 began a very rough period for Puccini and his family. In late September, Elvira, Puccini's wife, began to suspect her husband was having an affair with their housemaid, Doria Manfredi. By October 4th, Puccini found himself completely surrounded by this horrible situation, and he wrote to a friend, quote, My life goes on in the midst of sadness and the greatest unhappiness. I should like to leave my home, but the opportunity never occurs because I lack the moral strength to do it. As a result, the girl has completely dried up, and God knows when I shall have the courage to take up my work again. Puccini did escape to a hotel in Paris, but Elvira continued her attacks on the housemaid. She fired Doria and informed everyone in the village about the alleged affair. Puccini wrote that his life had been destroyed by his wife's jealousy and that he was so unhappy he had, quote, often lovingly held my revolver tightly. He returned to Italy and told his publisher that he was worried about his poor girl of the West and he felt that he was neglecting her too much. As Christmas approached, his wife's behavior and its toll on Doria's health and mental state appalled him. On January the 23rd, 1909, Doria swallowed a lethal amount of a corrosive poison. Puccini was in Rome and received word of the suicide attempt. Doria did not die immediately, but was instead in massive pain as the poison ate its way through her body. Five days later, she succumbed. Immediately following the death, Doria's mother asked the local doctor to examine her and it was determined that she had indeed died a virgin. Elvira had escaped to Milan and to be away from the angry villagers and the parents of the deceased girl. Puccini made it clear that he wanted nothing more to do with Elvira and asked Ricordi to initiate a formal separation between the couple. On February the 1st, Doria's mother filed a formal lawsuit charging Elvira with causing her daughter suicide by continual and blatant defamation of character. A local magistrate proclaimed the case to be heard in the court in Lucca on July 6, 1909. Puccini traveled back and forth from Rome, Milan, and Paris in an attempt to cope with the suicide and his wife's pending trial. The trial began in July, and Elvira was found guilty on three counts, defamation of character, libel, and menace to life and limb. Puccini, without his wife's knowledge, negotiated with the family to drop the charges. Arrangements were finally concluded with the family, who agreed upon a settlement of 12,000 lira. The case was officially closed on October the 2nd. Although the bitterness and suspicion lingered for many years after the couple's reconciliation, the tragedy that stopped Puccini's work on La Fanchula del West and nearly destroyed two families was now over. 
Elvira returned home and Puccini returned to his piano. And finally, quote, a purgatory of 10 months had come to an end. In August of 1909, the composer resumed work in earnest. He wrote, quote, The opera is now beginning to take on life and strength, forward with courage. After not speaking for almost a year, Puccini and Zangarini agreed once again to work together to complete the opera. In June of 1910, Puccini traveled to Paris for two weeks to oversee a production of Manon Lescaut. The Metropolitan Opera was presenting it as part of the Italian season with the opera company Chalet. During this visit, Puccini and the Metropolitan Opera made final arrangements for the rights to the world premiere to open in December. What could be more fitting, an opera written for the United States based on an American play within an American subject, and for New York and the Metropolitan Opera, this was clearly a crucial moment in attempting to demonstrate international credentials to compete with major European cities. Even though it had been six years since the last premiere of a Puccini opera, remember he did spend three years revising Madame Butterfly, his fame was at its height, and the Metropolitan Opera knew that this would be a major benefit for the company. On the historic occasion of the signing of the contract, newspapers reported that it was signed with a special golden pen. Have you ever wondered what a contract with Puccini sounded like? Well, here's a bit of the contract with the Met for the world premiere of Fanchula. The contract reads, Maestro Giacomo Puccini agrees to come to New York in the months of November and December 1910 and remain there for four consecutive weeks. In these four weeks, Maestro Giacomo Puccini will assist with the performances of his operas, and he will oversee the staging of La Fanchula del West. The Metropolitan Opera Company agrees to remit to Maestro Puccini the amount of 20,000 lira plus round-trip fares from Milan for said composer and his wife, as well as full room and board for those four weeks in New York. And by room and board, it is meant an apartment with a living room, a bedroom, a bathroom, all meals, as well as automobiles. During those four weeks, Maestro Giacomo Puccini agrees to put himself entirely at the disposal of the Metropolitan Opera Company. Side note. The part about the automobiles, that was added by hand in the contract to satisfy Puccini's lust and need for cars. And now, with contract in hand, Puccini rushed home to finish the opera.
interesting side note. Remember that 20,000 lira that we just discussed in the contract? If you do some fancy math and figure out what the lira and the conversion rate and all of that from 1910 to US dollars today right now, it's about $1.9 million. On August 15th, 1910, Puccini wrote to a friend, quote, so the girl is finished at last. Now I'm leading a peaceful existence. Whenever I feel like it, I go and have a dip in the sea. I'm waiting for my new car to go to Spain or to the north. I haven't quite decided yet. The girl has come out, in my opinion, the best opera I have ever written. The story of La Fanchula del West is actually quite simple and can be reduced down to these few words. Boy and girl meet, boy and girl fall in love, and girl saves boy's life at the end as they ride off together. Now, there are a few plot twists here and there, but for the most part, the story really is that simple. The boy, whose name is Dick Johnson, is actually a bandit on the run, and he comes into the company of the girl, Minnie, because he wants to rob her saloon for the gold stored there by the miners. Of course, it is love at first sight. However, the sheriff, Jack Rance, who is also in love with the girl, has a problem with there being a stranger in town. There's a quick moment where the boy actually has a chance to steal the gold, but he doesn't. The two lovers have a quick rendezvous, but then the sheriff shows up. The boy is shot, but then rescued by the girl. She hides him and then plays a game of poker for his life. This is one of the best scenes in the opera. If she wins, she keeps the boy. And if the sheriff wins, well, he's probably going to die. After she cheats in the game in order to win, the sheriff leaves. Later, the boy is caught by the sheriff's gang and is about to be hung. He asks the gang to please tell the girl how much he loves her. And just as he is about to die, the girl comes riding in on a horse. She pleads with the miners to let him go and reminds them of her love for each of them. And she tells them, quote, I am still what once I was to you, the friend and sister, who once taught you the supreme truth of love. Brothers, there is no sinner in the world to whom a path to redemption is not open. One of the miners tells the girl, quote, Your words are of God. In the name of all, I give him to you. As the two reunited lovers ride off together and sing about the things they will miss most, the miners, knowing they will never again see the girl they have all grown to love, sing my pew, which translated means never again. As Puccini simply put it, quote, the girl of the Golden West is a drama of love and redemption. Oh, 
the subject matter, leaving home to mine for gold in California, and a lonely and longing life, the grand spaciousness of California and the hope of striking it rich, the seemingly simple yet never so conflict of love versus money, friendship, and jealousy. The first performance of La Fanchula del West took place at the Metropolitan Opera on December the 10th, 1910. Enrico Caruso and Emily Destin were the stars, and the production was conducted by the newly minted music director at the Metropolitan Opera, Arturo Toscanini. David Belasco served as the stage director. And remember, this was the first world premiere for the Metropolitan Opera. Side note, when the Metropolitan Opera moved to its new home at Lincoln Center, La Fanchula del West was the first opera to be performed with an audience on that stage. On April the 11th, 1966, a school performance took place for 3,000 students. During this test run of the new theater and everything that that theater had to offer, the national anthem was played, and then several tests were held to test the acoustics, including several loud chords from the orchestra and several gunshots. However, this was not the official opening of the Opera House. That happened just a couple days later on September 16th with the world premiere of Barber's new opera, Antony and Cleopatra. The official opening of Fanchula was a couple nights later for that same season. Also, the Met produced the work in 2010 for the 100th anniversary of the world premiere. Another side note, there is a moment from Act One where the male lead, Dick Johnson, sings a phrase while singing to many. The girl. The same phrase is said to resemble a very similar phrase in Andrew Lloyd Webber's Phantom of the Opera, particularly the hit song Music of the Night. The Puccini estate sued Andrew Lloyd Webber over copyright infringement, and the matter was settled out of court for an undisclosed amount. So all of the clips that you're hearing in this episode come from my recommended recording. It's sung by Carol Neblet, Placido Domingo, and conducted by Zubin Mehta, the Royal Opera House Orchestra, the chorus. Check it out. If you don't have it in your library, get it. My opinion, the best recording of this opera recorded as of right now, today. Recommended reading, a really wonderful book called Puccini and the Girl, History and Reception of the Girl of the Golden West. It's written by Annie Randall and Rosalind Gray Davis. It's one of the most thorough, complex books that I've ever seen based on any one opera. I've read it a few times. I revisited it while doing research for this episode. I can't recommend it enough. Your library, if you're a fan of Puccini, and especially if you're a fan of La Fanchula del West, you must have this book in your library. 
would like to give a shout out today to Opera Ithaca. Check them out, operaithaca.org, a wonderful company in upstate New York, located in Ithaca. This company does some really interesting productions. They have a new artistic director, and I've seen what they've got coming up. In fact, I'm going to be doing a show there soon. And it's just a really, really great company. They hire a mix of well-established and also young emerging artists. Opera Ithaca, check them out. Great company. And I think you will enjoy what they have to offer. And especially, it's a beautiful part of uh, New York State. So my friends, we have a couple questions today. If you have a question for me, uh, shoot me an email, themischievousmaestro at gmail.com, and I will get to that question either in a podcast episode or uh, I will send you an email with an answer. But please shoot me a question. I'd love to hear from you. The first question actually didn't come from me in an email. It was actually just slid across the table from me from my very special assistant. My beautiful wife, Megan, has a question, and she wrote for me in really beautiful handwriting. She says, I love Fanchula, but I always find myself chuckling a bit as I hear random English words uh, interspersed within the Italian lyrics. Why did Puccini choose these words, and why are they in the, the show? Well, Megan, remember, Puccini was wanting to explore the exotic. The Wild West was still considered exotic not only in Italy, but also kind of in the United States as well, even though we're in the period of 1910, but the play takes place in mid-1800s during the California Gold Rush. And this was still something that was unknown territory, unknown lands. People literally picked up their entire lives and took a chance of moving out, hoping to strike gold and to claim their fortune in the world. Puccini wanted to keep that exotic nature in the score, not only musically, which he does very much so by using music influenced heavily by WC and by Richard Strauss and Wagner, but he also uh, ran just random words. In fact, the very first word that you hear in the show, before you ever hear an Italian word, you hear the word hello as the miners are coming in from working all day. They're entering the saloon and they say hello. You hear musically, you hear a cakewalk, you hear a polka in the, the prelude leading up to this. So already Puccini is adding in some, quote, American influences. You hear one of the tunes that one of the singers sings is influenced by a Native American song. You hear other words. You hear the word whiskey a lot in Act One. You hear them when they're talking about playing poker. They say the word poker. The names, Dick Johnson, Jack Rance, and many, and even the word polka. So you It's a little jarring when you first hear it to be listening to this beautiful Italian opera and to hear all of these great Italian words, and then all of a sudden hear a random English word thrown in. It's a little jarring at first, but I think Puccini did it because he wanted to keep the American feel. He wanted to keep the Americana, but he also wanted to keep that exoticness. One of my favorite lines, and I know it's one of yours as well, because we always giggle when we're listening to it, when Minnie is professing her love for Dick Johnson. And she says the line, Sempre Dick. My 14-year-old self inside has to laugh at that every time because what she's actually saying is always my dick. Um, She's talking about the guy, but still, I just have to giggle. So that's why Puccini used that. He wanted to keep that Americana feel. He wanted to use, he wanted to keep the exoticness of the subject matter, 
uh, the land and the music uh, all together. And I think he did a really brilliant job of that. So excellent question, Megan. Gold star for you today. So our second question today actually comes from another Mischievous Maestro team member, Jeff, who is a brilliant set designer, and he's also our art director for the podcast, wanted to know, how did David Belasco bring his magic from Broadway to the opera stage? Well, remember, first of all, David Belasco was hired by the Metropolitan Opera at Puccini's insistence to direct the world premiere of Fanchula. After all, it was his play, The Girl of the Golden West, that was set. And also, if you'll remember, when we talked about Madame Butterfly a couple episodes ago, we talked heavily about David Belasco, and he was nicknamed the Wizard of the Stage. And he and his team could come up with so much magic using state-of-the-art lighting effects, scenic effects, and, and other special effects. Belasco's use of snow in Act Two, which really hadn't been done much on the opera stage. Now, yes, it does snow in Act Three of La Boheme, but with the type of snow and the wind blowing the snow and stuff that they wanted for Act Two for Fanchula to create that Sierra Mountain effect and the rolling uh, show curtain at the beginning to show the passage coming down from the mountains and also in Act Three as well, whenever the they're chasing, uh, catching Dick Johnson, the the gang members. All of this was done by special effects that were designed by David Belasco for this production. And some of those special effects are still used today by the Metropolitan Opera on stage when doing this opera. Now, obviously, they've updated the scenery. I think it is very interesting that he was able to transfer, you know, a lot of people, serious opera fans, snub their nose at Broadway. But what serious opera fans don't realize is that without Broadway, we would not have a lot of the stuff that we have on the opera stage today. Belasco is one of the huge reasons for that. Yeah. So how did he influence the production? He was the stage director. He was, I'm sure, heavily involved, if not completely involved, or just did it himself, the set design for the production and worked with Puccini. He, Puccini wanted to make sure that they could recreate on the Metropolitan Opera stage what he saw in the Belasco Theater, he saw the uh, production in 1907 of the play Girl of the Golden West. So there you go. So kind of fun today to have two questions from our team members here at the Mischievous Maestro. So thank you, Megan and Jeff, for that. My friends, I would like to leave you with one last thought. And this is actually kind of one of my favorite things that, that I have found in my studies over the years about Puccini and the two or three productions of Fanciullo that I've conducted. And I always come back to this thought. After Puccini and Elvira reconciled their relationship, Doria was never spoken of again. However, Puccini would still, on occasion, take flowers to her grave and place them there. And he did this for the rest of his life. Join us next time as we talk about Puccini's almost operetta, La Rondine. And while talking about La Rondine, we will be enjoying a Dubonnet. So until then, my friends, stay thirsty for knowledge. The Mischievous Maestro podcast is researched and written by me, Andy Anderson. Recording engineer and co-producer is Ryan Hall. Art director and co-producer, Jefferson Reidenauer. 
very personal assistant to the mischievous maestro and co-producer Megan King. Production assistant, co-producer, and all-round great guy is Yvonne Khan. Publicist for Andy Anderson is Jonathan Blaylock. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite platform to get all of the upcoming episodes with exciting drinks. To learn more about The Mischievous Maestro and for the drink recipes, visit our website, themischievousmaestro.com, and follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. The Mischievous Maestro is so much more than a podcast. It's a lifestyle. I would like to remind you to please drink responsibly. If you're not old enough, don't do it. And if you are old enough, do it in moderation. And if you're having a bad day and refuse to drink in moderation, then please follow these simple rules for overindulgence. Please don't drink and drive. Please don't drink too much and then email your boss asking for a raise. And please, for all that's holy in the world, don't drink too much and then drunk text your ex at 3 a.m. This podcast is the sole property of the mischievous maestro and may not be used in whole or any part without the express written permission of Andy Anderson.